Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air via social distancing. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week in 321 Go, we have a special interview with Dave Wedge on his book, Hunting Whitey. Then Ann Murphy interviews Daryl Fess, president and CEO of Brookline Bank, and he talks a little bit about what they're doing to serve customers during this difficult time. And in two minutes with Tom, Tom and I catch up on current events. First up, 321Go. All right, we're back for another remote edition of 321Go here on the OA On Air Remote Podcast. Joining me as always, Kyan Isaacson, the official voice of OA On Air. Hey, Kyan. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well. Uh, I'm very well. Hey, let's let's start with grocery shopping. Kyan, how's your how's your pandemic uh, uh, grocery uh, life these days? Have you resumed more normal grocery activities? Are you? I, I imagine you're still as vigilant as always with uh, personal protective uh, uh, strategies and wearing a mask and things, but. Uh, does it feel more normal? It's starting to feel a little bit more of the experience that I used to have, even though now everyone wears a mask. So somehow that makes it, I don't know if that makes it more or less unusual. I guess I'm just more used to it. Uh, for a while, it was just, used to know, it. Yeah. I love the little, I love the little dance, you know, that everyone does when you're like turning the corner and the aisle, like you take two steps back and that person takes two steps over and trying to maintain social distance when you come into close contact. Um, I've, I've limited my grocery shopping. I don't kind of bounce around as much as I used to to go to all different stores for different things. Um, and we'll still do a delivery here and there. But for the most yeah. part, I, you know, I go to one grocery store a week. Yeah, that makes sense. I think I think our our patterns are pretty much the same. We've got a you know, one sort of small neighborhood market we like, and then and then a grocery store. Uh, I I'm in sort of a daily habit of of, of picking up a couple of small things uh, uh, at a conven- at a corner convenience store, but basically same type of pattern. Um, and one of the stores that I think we both favor, Trader Joe's, has, has been in the news in the last. Uh, week or so because of some branding that is now uh, a little bit under fire. There's a change.org petition calling on Trader Joe's to eliminate what uh, some consider uh, racially incentive, uh, insensitive uh, branding around some of their, um, uh, you know, uh, culturally diverse products, whether it's uh, uh, their Trader Jose's brand of taco shells and uh, uh, and, and, and things like that. Or there's another brand called Trader Ming's of Asian uh, food and uh, Trader Giotto, Italian uh, uh, choices and things like that. And um, it's gathered a bit of a head of steam. And it's made us think a lot about branding, right? And, 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 what go, and the decisions that go into branding. Yeah. For, and before we even get into that, I just want to also say this petition that um, has garnered more than 3,400 signatures was launched by a high school senior um, who decided that she wanted to call out Trader Joe's for having, quote, according to her, racist packaging. Um, and what a reminder that anybody can have an impact on change. Um, and I just, I, I find that incredibly inspiring and encouraging. So I just want to flag that this was all started by a high school senior. 
Um, and now it, it, it is, a, it, it's now national news. It is a very good civic engagement lesson. It is. You're never, you know, anyone can do it. Um, so Trader Joe's came out and said that they actually made the decision several years ago to only use the Trader Joe's name on products moving forward. Um, they don't have an exact date for when replacement packaging will be completed. Now, you've got to wonder if that's a little bit of a trying to cover themselves and, and say, no, 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 we we're way ahead of this. I don't know that we'll ever know. But it's certainly an interesting conversation for companies to be having about... Oh, what do they got like an old stockpile of the Trader Jose packaging they got to burn through before they can change over? That's what it seems. That's how it sounds. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, but, you know, for people in marketing, public relations, branding, you know, these companies, when you sit down and we've had this conversation before where it's like, what were people thinking? This one is a little different, but it's also just a good reminder that when when you're making decisions, the people around the table, do you have diversity at the table? Do you have people from different demographics, different race, different genders represented? Because what might make sense to one group of people to another is sort of a no-brainer of how did how would you be okay with this? Yeah. No, it's true. I, 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 and I, I don't – I mean – when you start to look at the other the other uh, sort of uh, cultural branding they use, Trader Ming and, and, and some of the others, on top of the initial sort of one that more people are familiar with, which is this Trader Jose branding, um, you, you start to see a pattern that, 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 that um, plausibly could be considered insensitive, if not, and I don't think sort of overtly, purposefully racist, but, you know, uh, perhaps unintentionally or uh, clumsily insensitive. Yeah, and, and quite frankly, you know, the public debate, you know, the public conversation in America right now is, which of those things do we need to reconcile and uh, and change? And and this is this is now in the, you know, and this uh, category is now in that conversation. But you know, when I look at the Trader Jose brand, I'm like, all right, on its face, you could make a pretty good argument uh, that. That that's simply a translation of Joe or Joseph. Jose is you know Spanish language for Joe or Joseph, uh, common usage. So why is that wrong? And there's nothing really about the branding otherwise that, that is it's just color schemes. Um, but but there's more to it than that also, right, Cayenne? Yeah, it it's it, but again, I feel like it comes back to who was at the table when they decided that making that change was was okay and seems appropriate because it was just a to, to your point a, a, tra a translation in Spanish um, but I think that it's probably some of the other categories uh, as you'd mentioned like the trader Mings the trader where it's no longer a translation and it is just a little bit of an appropriation of a of a name um, and what was interesting is, the high school senior and her response was the Trader Joe's branding is racist because of what it does to other cultures. It presents, quote, Joe as the default normal and the other characters falling outside of it. 
And I think that's really well said. And when it's put that way, it's a very, it's a much more simple concept to understand and say, okay, yeah, there's no need. Yeah, it's, it's, it, you know, it, it, and even the more we talk about it, it starts to come into focus a little bit. If, if you, if you just use the word differently, take, call it out, right? Like you're calling somebody, I mean, if you were to say, and I'm just just for the sake of of uh, uh, of illustration here, uh, yeah, Trader Joe is the default. That's the real brand. So then, why do you have to to come up with something that's completely different in the case of Trader Man or even Trader Giotto, right? They're Italian brand. It's like if you yell, "Hey Gino, Hey Giotto," like you're 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 kind of stereotyping a name for a culture. Same yeah. with Trader Ming. You're just saying, oh, that's the kind of name that an entire category of uh, of shopper would respond to. And when you start to think of it that way, and I guess that's getting a level deeper. It's it's certainly deeper than I usually dive. Um, <laughs> it it makes sense as this conversation should probably happen. I, you know, I I want to see yeah. how it ends. It sounds like it sounds like Trader Joe's. I mean, the, the reality is their their own brand is very, very strong and can probably carry any product, their own, you know, the name yeah. of the store. And it, it seems like they are responding to it appropriately. And you've got to wonder how many other companies, whether they're grocery stores or otherwise, are looking at this story and saying, okay, what do we need to be looking at that we might be doing wrong that could be deemed racist or offensive? And how do we fix it? Yeah. Makes sense. All right. Good one, Kyan. Good conversation. Uh, interesting topic. We'll see how it turns out. All right. Up next on OA On Air, we're happy to be joined by Dave Wedge, co-author of Hunting Whitey, with his um, writing partner, Casey Sherman. Uh, Dave, great to have you back on OA On Air. Happy to do it. Hope you guys are all doing well. You too. It's been a strange year and a strange summer, but uh, we are in, in, the, uh, in the teeth of summer, and you are in the midst of uh, a pretty remarkable uh, and probably unusual and maybe challenging book promotional tour for this final, an incredible chapter in the Whitey Bulger saga, um, I, you know, the revel, the revelations, the the background detail, the uh, the amazing conversations that yet we have access to as a reader that Whitey Bulger had with people in prison and uh, and elsewhere, and, and his movements in Santa Monica, and everything leading up to his capture, and then his ultimately his murder in prison, but. It, it, it's it's a it's a remarkable book, and I want you to talk more about it in, in a moment. But but first, talk about the process of something you're very familiar with as a as a successful best selling author of multiple books with with Casey Sherman. Uh, the process of doing the book tour, doing the promotional tour. You've been all over the place. You've had a great you had a terrific launch here in Boston, uh, and, and every week it seems the two of you were doing something different. But I got to imagine, from a promotional perspective, it's been challenging in this uh, in this environment with the pandemic and everything else. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, you know, it's it's 
we, you know, the book came out Memorial Day weekend and, and back in, uh, you know, the pandemic first kind of started here in the United States in, you know, February, March, we had conversations with our publisher about whether, you know, when the lockdowns were starting about whether or not we should release it or hold it. And um, everyone was on board to, you know, make the decision to release it on on time and kind of see see what would happen. It was a real experiment for everybody, you know, us included and, and the publisher and you know, our publisher is HarperCollins, and um, so we were really one of the first test cases for them to to release a book during this sort of situation with, um, you know, online only and virtual events and, you know, online sales only. Because remember, bookstores were completely closed until just recently. It's only been the last couple of weeks that the bookstores have reopened. Yep. And um, so, you know, the... the the you know it's been it's been different it's been exciting in some ways it's been uh better in some ways it's been worse i mean you know case and i you know we had a huge event planned at at big night live um you know over there uh, by the garden and we were going to you know four or five hundred people as we do for all our books and media and sign books and you know we we're going to have a live music and all this stuff so you know we we didn't get to have that experience but um, we've done some tremendous and innovative kind of online events. I think, you know, we did an online launch with NBC 10 Boston, which was, which went really well. Um, you know, we, we kind of launched the book there. We've done a ton of press, uh, online. We did an event the other day with, um, the wall street journal and Barron's. They, they did a, a special little, uh, members only event author talk with us and we're doing zoom, events at different libraries and stuff. Um, Amazon sales have been great, but, you know, we'll see how this all plays out as we move forward here. And, you know, the bookstore sales are just starting to happen. So that's a good thing. So we're hoping to get out and do some live events in the coming months as, as you know, as the, you know, pandemic allows. Yeah. But, um, both, both, both yourself and Casey Sherman, uh, incredibly experienced journalist and, and, and very experienced public relations uh, professionals. Are you, do you self-direct a lot of your promotional stuff? Are, are you telling the Harper, uh, the publish, the publishers, uh, uh, publicist, uh, what the score is, or, or, or do they do a lot of that with you or for you, or is it a combination? It's a team effort. You know, they're, you know, frankly, they're lucky to work with guys like Casey and I, because, we do have this experience where, you know, like you, we understand how to promote things and promote it well and get media attention. So I think that's part of the reason Casey and I do do well with our books because we know how to focus on the news and get the news out to the right outlets at the right time. Um, but that said, you know, the publicity team we have there at HarperCollins, it's, it's actually William Morrow, which is a division of HarperCollins. Um, our publicist there, this woman, Danielle Bartlett, has been phenomenal and she's gotten us some great, great press. Like, you know, she got us on the Jenny McCarthy show, which was, uh, Jenny has a podcast and Donnie was on it, her husband, Donnie Wahlberg. So, you know, we went on that and, uh, that was a video, uh, zoom, uh, podcast and, and it was, you know, got a ton of hits and, uh, sold a bunch of books and it was great to talk to Donnie, you know, Donnie tweeted about it and, you know, that stuff's invaluable. So, uh, they have a great team there at, at William Morrow. And I think Casey and I just kind of compliment it. That's terrific. You know, one of the things that the two of you do that I think is ingenious from a PR perspective is during the process of writing, during the process of your research, 
when you are encountering or do uh, or you're on a, a reporting mission uh, and and you're and you're about to do some exciting uh, a, a new endeavor or when you're about to get access to something that no one has ever seen before and you tweet about it you talk about it you promote that here we are about to look at XYZ about to see these records for the first time I think that's a great way to engage your fan base and to grow it before you've even delivered on the delivered the product right while the, during the process I don't see a lot of that I think that's really really smart well, yeah, you know, I go back and forth on that stuff, to be honest with you, because, you know, K- Casey is a, is a master uh, promoter. Um, I'm sometimes a little more skittish on it, and I, I like to hold my cards a little tighter. As a, You know, that's the journalist in me, I think. Sure. And Casey obviously has a long journalism background as well, but uh, I do believe in, in us teasing things, and, and we have built a fan base now, and we've got a track record with these books. People know what they're going to get from our books, which is – a damn good story with a lot of new information, you know, whatever the topic is, whether it's Tom Brady or the ice bucket challenge or the marathon or, or, you know, this one, uh, Whitey Bulger. So, um, you know, I think everyone in publicity knows that, you know, engaging your audience is, is, is the name of the game these days. So we try to do that and provide content um, for the people that are, you know, kind of waiting for our next stuff. We'll be talking to Dave Wedge, co-author of hunting Whitey with Casey Sherman. Dave, just so many revelations in your book um, and really tells what I think is maybe the most fascinating and uh, exciting chapters in all of this, because we've learned we learned so much from him, from the words of Whitey Bulger himself, uh, pieces of this mystery that we never knew. What are some of your favorite uh, gems that you uncovered in reporting and writing this book? So I think, you know, Casey and I went back and forth, you know, we never thought we'd write a Whitey Bulger book, but then when he was murdered in uh, prison in 2018, um, you know, we, we saw a way into the story and we just talked to each other and said, you know, someone's going to write this final chapter and uh, I think we could really knock it out of the park. So we got to work. And one of the things that happened early on was we made connections with a, an inmate that Whitey had served uh, three or four years with out in Arizona named uh, Chip Janice and Chip and I and Casey built a relationship and he actually had over 70 letters uh, that Bulger had written to him after he left the Tucson prison. And those letters are crucial to our book where you're really hearing for the first time in in any of the Whitey books from Whitey himself more than ever before, Um, including him talking about his life on the run, his love for Catherine. Um, But most importantly, what, what Chip had was, the last known pictures ever seen of Bulger. Um, he actually had photographs from inside the Tucson prison of Bulger with his prison art teacher. And uh, those are in the book. So that, that was, when I saw those, I was like, wow, these are the last known pictures of Whitey Bulger other than his arrest photos, you know? Um, uh, so, so that was great to see. Um, also, I, I think, you know, we, we made contact with the, one of the prime suspects in Bulger's murder, a guy named Freddie Gias. And we've been writing letters back and forth with, with Freddie for over a year. And, uh, you know, he, he doesn't get into the details of what happened, but he talks to us uh, a, a bit about his life and we get a good sense of who he is and, um, and you know, potential motive there. He did have some connections to some uh, folks that, that figure into the Whitey Bulger case. I don't want to give too much away for people that are going to read it, but, um, you know, it's, it, it's, it was a fascinating journey for us. Uh, 
you know, we're excited about it. We also had like an exclusive interview with Billy Bulger, the, the first time he's spoken in over 12 years. So I think there's a lot here that, that people have never heard from before and are going to be excited about. All right. The author is Dave Wedge. The book is Hunting Whitey. Dave, thanks for joining us. Great conversation as always. Thank you, guys. All right, Kyan, Paul and Aravon in the news. 50-plus uh, days of pretty consistent protests and uh, civil unrest of various intensities on different days. Uh, significant police presence, but also federal agents, U.S. Marshals, Special Ops, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, their tactical unit deployed by the federal government, by the president, um, with promises from the president to do this elsewhere chicago comes to mind other new york comes to mind uh where he feels where the federal government feels where the president feels that not enough is being done at the local level by law enforcement or by more specifically by political figures who have influence over law, law local law enforcement uh to keep uh, to keep order and, and i know we're seeing mayors in other cities Chicago being chief among them, and now even Boston, too, um, saying, hey, you know what? Thanks, but no thanks. We've got control of our own security here. We don't need federal troops unilaterally deployed. Uh, and that has really become a major <laughs> national conversation. And um, yeah, what are your thoughts on, or at least wh where do you think the call should be made to bring in assistance? Um, from the federal government to a municipality. My first reaction is that it's it's a scary concept. Um, it's not the sort of thing that we are used to seeing in the United States. Um, you know, the deputy police chief of Portland is quoted as saying they're not under our control. Um, people were not sent in as reinforcements to help. They're there sort of taking over. And I think that's, to me, that's the difference. They're, um, the control aspect and the kind of who's in charge gets a little, gets a little dicey. Uh, and the idea that that sort of force can just be, I don't want to use, I was about to say executed, and that felt like the wrong word. Um, that that sort of carried force out. carried out, that's much better, um, without them asking for it or having a say in it, uh, certainly is, it's concerning. Uh, it, this, this just, it's not, it's not generally how we do things here. Um, and it's a little, it would be, if I were in a city and running the police department or a mayor, it would certainly be concerning to me and off-putting to have presence of officers in my city that I had no control over. But they're not answering to anyone on the ground there. Um, yeah, it's it's not what you expect to see in any city in the United States. That's for sure. Think of, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to make some absurd examples, right? But imagine, um, you know, the, uh, 
U.S. Forest Service coming in to put out a house fire in, uh, you know, in, in uh, Arlington, or imagine, you know, um, uh, sending in the Army Corps of Engineers to pave your street. I mean, it, it, it's it's a it, it it could be seen as a, a misappropriation of federal resources unnecessarily when they have not been requested. Look, I have tremendous faith in the, in the law enforcement of officers in my own community. And quite frankly, because I'm really familiar with lots of communities in Massachusetts, because I've lived and worked all over the place, Western, Central, Eastern, you name it. Uh, and, and, you know, South Shore. So, you know what? I have a tremendous amount of faith in local law enforcement here in Massachusetts. And I feel that in any situation, even the most trying, like, uh, the unfortunate uh, activities that, that, that followed some of the protests, uh, you know, some of the peaceful protests were then buttressed or, or, or uh, uh, you know, uh, followed by, uh, by uh, you know, non-peaceful, violent, looting-type activity for a couple of nights. Still had full faith in, the, in that case, primarily the Boston Police Department doing an excellent job and uh, managing a tough situation. So, I don't know if if many lay people feel that way, and, and you know that local departments are not call, are, are and, and uh, mayors and uh, are, are not calling for that assistance. Then yeah, I think the way I would describe it is they're being unilaterally deployed, uh, and, and that, that feels like uh, just a misappropriation of resources and, and unnecessary uh, deployment. Yeah, it really comes back to the how. Right. It, it's there's nothing to say that the federal government shouldn't be ready or prepared or willing to go in and help at the local or state level when it's necessary. It is the it's the how it's being executed um, yeah. that is certainly disconcerting to say. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ugh, again, it's right. OK. Executing something you need <laughs> carrying it out. Um, two, two, uh, just two final thoughts. Some of the tactical things there. It was a pretty, wi pretty uh, uh, widely uh, viewed viral video of, of a, a, you know, a, a wounded Navy veteran, you know, recognizing what he felt was, you know, raw, incorrect conduct, or, or questioning these federal officers, these federal agents, saying, "Hey, come on, this is not your oath. What are you doing?" And 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 he gets beaten pretty bad with a baton. Uh, and then he just kind of walks away uh, and, and, and flips them off. And then in some cases, agents are, this is anecdotally, but based on, uh, you, you know, credible news reports being snatched, uh, agents are, have snatched people up off the street, taking them into custody and, and not even really telling them exactly what they're being held for, which, what agency is holding them. Other than they know, well, I know I'm in the courthouse basement in a cell uh, or in a holding room. So I know I haven't been kidnapped by bad guys. <laughs> this is my government. And then they get released again, anecdotally based on what I believe to be accurate news reports. So some of these tactical things have really wound people up also. Yeah, I think the list is long. And unfortunately, um, if this gets carried out in even more cities, uh, the list is going to get even longer. Yeah. All right. We'll see what happens and how this evolves. Uh, there's there's a couple of sides to, to how people view this. I think some people feel like, uh, you know, well, if, if 
if, a, if, a, if the local community in, in Portland or Chicago you know, don't have things under control, then, then the president needs to step in. Well, I, I don't know if it's supposed to work that way. I, I think the community, the municipality is supposed to request assistance. All right, Cayenne. Good, uh, good conversation. Have a good week. Thanks, Father. Welcome to OA On Air. I'm Ann Murphy, partner at Seven Letter, which recently merged with the public relations practice at O'Neill & Associates. And today we're talking to Daryl Fess, president and CEO of Brookline Bank, about what the bank has been doing to serve customers during this pandemic. Daryl, welcome back to OA On Air. We know you've been visible over the past few months in various webinars and virtual meetings, talking about how the bank is handling its operations during the COVID-19 crisis. Now, we know that banks are essential services. Some people might not even realize that, though. And banks have been open, Brookline Bank, all along during this pandemic. And the first question I have for you is, how has Brookline Bank approached the crisis? So, Ann, thanks for having me back on your show. Uh, I appreciate being here. Uh, you know, Brookline Bank has approached the pandemic uh, first and foremost with the eye on making sure that our customers, our clients, and our employees are, are well, and that what we're doing uh, is a safe practice uh, for all of uh, the people that come into our branches and come to work every day. Uh, so some of the things that we've, you know, built in, you know, early on, I think back to, you know, it seems like a long time ago already. I think back to um, when we were, we were first worried about this virus and, and we, um, we were like, what are people going to do? They're going to put on masks. Um, mm -hmm. What are we going to do to protect the branches? You know, quickly we, we, we realized we couldn't let people just kind of meander into the branches anymore. So we started uh, locking the doors and making people call um, for appointments in order to come and visit and meet with their bankers. Mm -hmm. uh, that's still in effect today where um, we have not unlocked our doors. I think we, we find it still important. Uh, it gives us an ability to regulate how many people are in the branch at a time. Uh, and make sure that everybody uh, is online with wearing a mask when you come in uh, and and uh, and ensuring that everybody is acting uh, in a safe manner. Uh, we also have about 80% of our back office people are working from home, uh, which I'm sure is very common amongst my clients, uh, amongst many industries and many businesses. I mean, obviously, like safety is the priority for your customers and for your employees. And that, that, that is good to hear. And um, we know that some people have to do their business in the bank and some can do it remotely. Uh, do you have to prioritize some products and services over, over others? People have more of a dire need to come in or how does that work? Well, we do. We'll take anyone who wants to come in, but they have to follow our protocols. They have to have a mask. We have hand sanitizer for them. Um, we log them in in accordance with, you know, the, the most recent guidance and regulations from the Commonwealth. So people are welcome to come to our branches. Um, prioritizing services, you know, it, we need to take care of the people that need things done for them. Um, some some uh, transactions need to be done in a timely fashion, you know, whether it's a, 
a house closing um, or you need to close on your uh, your equity line of credit some of these things um, there's a reason people need the money and they want to have it you know in a timely fashion so you would say that so what the, the customers needs I guess you have to prioritize it depending upon what the need is immediately if they need an in-person you know consultation or if it is something that can be done maybe it's more you know working with the clients to show them if they can do something remotely and maybe it's easier for them in the long run as well yeah and we also try to to encourage them um to use our mobile and online products you know for a lot of our clients um, they were set in their ways of coming into the branch and they have learned uh, how to how to log into their uh, their bank accounts online and make payments and do all of those things uh, that that one keep you uh, physically distanced uh, yet get your banking done for you well, I know that one of the big things that happened that the bank was involved, the Brookline Bank was involved in, is the, the Paycheck Protection Program, which has gotten a lot of attention. Uh, how has Brookline Bank been impacted by the PPP? It was challenging, um, but we got the job done. We got the job done in the first round for our clients. You know, we were nimble. Um, we kept our... Um, our ear to the ground, understanding what the Treasury and the SBA were going to uh, require. And we made, you know, adjustments to the last minute when we turned on uh, the system and started taking uh, applications. And most of it for us was a manual process. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, a client would fill out their application. We'd bring it in. We had teams of people that did an incredibly amazing job for us. Uh, to to get that done, I think we have we've approved um, and closed on uh, 1,200 or so um, PPP loans, which was about 215 million and 250 million. Uh, and you know, I think we did a little survey of how many jobs that would have saved, and that was about 20,000 jobs. We think would have been saved from that program. Wow, that's certainly, that's certainly impressive. And I, I have heard, you know, all hands on deck and people that were not usually working in the processing of loans were, were called to uh, step in. And uh, that that's great that you have the type of employees who will, you know, just, just do it. Yeah, we were fortunate. We got a little um, good press on that one. Uh, WBUR uh, did a story and then it went uh, out on NPR radio as well uh, that kind of highlights um, the the above and beyond that many of our client uh, our uh, employees took to ensure that our clients would get these loans. Amazing. Um, I also um, know that I've heard you talk about the uh, the different levels of new normal, near normal, or would you say that we're in a near normal situation or we're not even there yet? And honestly, I don't think we're there yet. Um, you know, I, I come into Boston every day. I'm one of uh, uh, the few people that come into the bank. And that's just because I live close by. So I don't have to take public transportation or even drive in. Um, you know, but I look out the street on Clarendon Street and there aren't a lot of people out there. Um, the foot traffic is way down. I think that the tenancy of many of the office buildings around here is um is very low and so i don't i don't think we're near normal yet i think that we're still um 
evaluating and seeing what comes our way. There are going to be uh, more surprises. You know, we just have to remain nimble uh, and ready to to embrace the change that comes at us and, and make things work for our employees, our clients, and our communities. I guess we're all on the roller coaster ride right now, and nobody really knows when, where it's going to end. And um, I think that you know you reflect that with being in a financial services um, business. And the customers as well. What are they most concerned about regarding their financial situations? The uncertainty. Uh, it's definitely the uncertainty. Um, you know, the um, the um, the consumer side, you know, seems uh, relatively strong. And I think part of that is because of the uh, influx of money that the the government has put out there. You know, with the extra money for unemployment, I think that has you know helped uh, many people be able to pay their rent and continue to pay their bills. Uh, on the business side, I think that it's certainly, it's uncertainty. It's how long um, they can survive, you know, with um, less than normal amounts of income, uh, particularly those industries in the hospitality business. You know, if, if you open a restaurant and you only have 50% of the revenue that you had in the past, it's really, very difficult to make any money. So they're probably still suffering uh, and, and not getting through it. Um, so I, you know, I think there's, there's uncertainty, there's, there's worry, there's concern, um, but we are you know, doing everything in our efforts, in, in, our, um, in our way of handling things to, to do things uh, for our clients to, to help them get through this. So I guess we're all in this together as they always say, right? We are. <laughs> Well, Daryl, I thank you very much for being on our podcast. And uh, if they want more information, should people just go to your website? Yeah, well, you can come to my website. My phone number's there. The uh, All my executives are listed. Um, you can get a hold of us almost anytime you need. www.brooklinebank.com. You can find Daryl there. Thank you very much. And I look forward to seeing everybody soon. All right, Ann. Thank you. Diane, two minutes with uh, with you. Two minutes with you, Tom. It's two minutes with Tom. That's the title of the segment. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing fine. A little dismayed, you know, over over uh, over Washington antics, if you will. Um, very concerning to me. A couple of things. The can we talk current events, and we just kind of get into the daily headlines. Mm-hmm. So the president put on a mask at one stop last week, and for the first time in God knows how many weeks or months, he's actually said that the pandemic is going to get worse before it gets better. Mm-hmm. Patriotic to wear a mask. Well, good yeah. for him. But he doesn't give any... Months later. He doesn't give any months later, yeah. But he doesn't give any direction on what states, cities, people should be doing, except wear a mask. Good for him. But he won't order anybody to do anything. But he'll order the Secret Service out to Portland, Oregon, to, you know, wipe away protesters, which is deeply concerning to me. Deeply concerning to me, because it's a rogue state when you do that. 
Mm -hmm. He can do it anywhere he wants. And as bad as violence may be in some of our core cities, it's not the creation of liberal Democratic mayors that are creating it, according to Trump. You know, what it is, is, you know, Black Lives Matter has awakened people and has caused people to protest in one case. The hot summer months have, uh, hot summer days have made people angry and angrier. And in, in some minority communities, violence is out of hand, but it can be handled by local authorities, the police. In, these uh, local in uniform, I might add. With a uniform and with a mocked car, yeah. indicating that police are there. Not having unmarked automobiles with people, men, in, in fatigues getting out and hitting people over the head. Um, I've never seen anything like it in my life. And, you know, as I wind up saying, after all these broadcasts, we'll see a brighter day. We'll not only see a brighter day, we hopefully will see new leadership in Washington in the very near future. America really needs it. This man just floats. I'm talking about Trump, just floats, you know, authoritarianism. And it's very deeply disturbing. Um, if there is, in fact, a deep state, it's by his creation and, and, and nobody else. I, I, have no, I have nothing to say. I think that really wraps up the, the last few days. Listen, I know you're going back to California. You travel safely with your family. Thank you, sir. Talk to Cayenne. Have a talk good one. I'll talk to you over the week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air via social distancing. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.